Jag heter Per Axbom och du lyssnar på Webtrender. Hej och hjärtligt välkommen till det första av en serie podcasts eller poddradioprogram om webbtrender. Idag är det den 30 maj 2007. Företag och organisationer förflyttar en ökande andel av sina verksamheter in i den digitala världen som utgör internet. Både vi som vill och de som inte vill måste då också förflytta oss in i detta virtuella vimmel för att utföra våra dagliga ärenden. Företag vill effektivisera verksamheten och distribuera innehåll på ett kostnadseffektivt sätt. Gärna så att kunder och besökare sköter sin egen informationsförsörjning. Samtidigt ställer vi som människor och individer allt högre krav på att få vara med och påverka innehållet på webben. Vi förväntar oss ett ärligt, korrekt bemötande och att någon lyssnar och reagerar snabbt på våra behov. Samtidigt börjar också vanliga människor konkurrera om informationsutrymmet på samma villkor som massmedierna. Vem det är som styr spelplanen är just nu svårdefinierat. Sant är dock att vi alla förr eller senare måste ge oss in på informationsmotorvägen. Ett begrepp som du aldrig hör nu för tiden men som i början av 90-talet var faktiskt mediernas sätt att beskriva den webb som komma skulle. Informationsmotorvägen eller Information Superhighway. I programmet Webtrender pratar jag om begreppen som idag definierar denna motorväg. Sociala nätverk, communities, RSS, poddradio, användargenererat innehåll och Web 2.0. Det är inte alltid helt lätt att hålla koll på allt nytt samtidigt som man försöker hålla en befintlig webbplats vid liv. När ska man egentligen göra vad och varför? Webtrender är en vägledning in bland allt det nya. Jag hoppas kunna hjälpa dig att bättre förstå vilka möjligheter som finns och vilka åtgärder som kan göra din webbplats till en bättre upplevelse. Och vilka fenomen som kan göra ditt online-liv till ett lite roligare liv med betydligt färre inblandning av svordomar och frustration. Jag tar upp aktuella fenomen på internet, gör en ansats till att förklara dem och hur du på bästa sätt använder dig av dem. Jag har ett tydligt fokus på användbarhet och tillgänglighet. Inte bara ur ett användarperspektiv utan jag har lika stort fokus på användbarhet för dig som står bakom webbplatsen. Jag är också en anhängare av webbstandarder samtidigt som jag ibland kan föra fram viss kritik mot de som skapar standarder. Att kritisera de nya riktlinjerna från VTC och VAI är för övrigt ganska trendriktigt. Jag som producerar programmet heter Per Axbom och en person som lever och andas webb. Jag har innehaft de flesta roller inom webbproduktion och är idag webbstrateg på Excellent Consulting Group. I programmet tar jag upp teknik, tankar och idéer som har hjälpt mig och som jag hoppas kan hjälpa dig som lyssnar. Jag intervjuar också människor med intressanta synpunkter och hoppas givetvis också få uppslag från dig som lyssnar. Mer om hur du lämnar dina synpunkter får du i slutet av programmet. Programmets längd är beräknad till cirka 30 minuter, lagom alltså för dig att lyssna på på väg till jobbet eller när du tränar. Merparten av detta första program av webbtrender upptas av en intervju med ingen mindre än Brandon Shower från Adaptive Path. Efter intervjun rundar jag sedan av med att bena ut vad Brandon sagt och vad som egentligen utmärker det smått obskyra begreppet Web 2.0. Adaptive Path är ett konsultföretag i webbranschen som jag länge sett upp till sedan jag först deltog i en av deras workshops på en konferens i Boston år 2001. Det är ett sånt där företag som tycks göra allting rätt och är samtidigt väldigt duktiga på att dela med sig av kunskap. Hur de lyckas med det talar Brandon om i intervjun. Direkt översatt så har Adaptive Path följande uttalade vision. 
Vi hjälper företag att skapa produkter och tjänster som ger fantastiska upplevelser och förbättrar människors liv. En av Brandons kollegor på Adaptive Path, Jesse James Garrett, är faktiskt den person som myntade begreppet Ajax. Han utnämndes nyligen till en av de 50 viktigaste personerna på internet av amerikanska PC World. Adaptive Path har också lagt grunden för en del metodik som används vid användarundersökningar. Bland annat lärde jag mig i deras workshop mer om intervjuteknik och så kallade mental models som används för att skapa en informationsstruktur för en webbplats. Brandon Shower själv är designstrateg på Adaptive Path och kommer till Malmö den 14-15 juni. Han håller inledningsanförandet på konferensen From Business to Buttons som arrangeras av konsultföretaget Inuse och Malmö högskola. Konferensen har varit en perfekt ursäkt för mig att ringa upp Brandon via Skype och höra lite mer om vad det är Adaptive Path som företag gör så bra. Och kanske framförallt hur Brandon som i botten är industridesigner tycker att vi ska tänka när vi utformar våra webbplatser. Brandon och jag hade kommit överens om att prata i cirka 15 minuter. Det blev 45 minuter som jag nu har redigerat ner till 20 för det här programmet. Jag hoppas få chansen att återkomma till det här samtalet i framtiden och då plocka fler och nya exempel från ett mycket givande samtal. Nu kör vi. Hej, det är Brandon. Hej, Brandon. Det är Per. Hej, Per. Hur är du? Jag är fin. Hur är du? Doing well, doing well. Great. Uh, in this part of the show, I've been telling my listeners about Adaptive Path because I've been a big admirer of Adaptive Path for a few years. And um, uh, first of all, I'd love to talk if you could tell me about, a bit about yourself and how you ended up at, at Adaptive Path. Sure. Um, let's see. Should I do the history forwards or back? I'll do it uh, <laughs> forwards. That's yeah. easiest. Um, Started off my career as an undergraduate studying industrial design, and as a part of that, um, I happened to come across a, a project um, while I was at uh, the Institute of or Georgia Institute of Technology, Georgia Tech, and I was able to work with graduate students um, from the computer science uh, department. It was sort of the first cross-disciplinary thing I had ever, ever done as a student, and it. Um, was just it, it's something that really grabbed me. Um, industrial design, you end up working with, you know, the limitations of, of form factors and sc- mm-hmm. screen sizes and and th- those sorts of things, and as well as you know, chemistry and plastics, which I didn't actually enjoy that much. And so the the and this was 1991, 1992, um, and and the the world of software just seemed like a blank slate to me, and that was really <laughs> exciting and engaging. So. Um, so I really took to it. Um, it just it caused me to go for a deep dive into more the the, the HCI and software world. So yeah. I spent about five years um, at a small uh, uh, technology and design firm in Atlanta, Georgia. Then I got sucked into the big web thing, which worked for one of the large uh, consultancies in the United States uh, called Sapient. Uh, they're actually an international firm as yeah. well. Um, and spent uh, another five years there and realized that I really was having um, difficulties um, 
you know, getting my design work through. And I didn't know whether it was because um, I didn't have the acumen, the the ability to convey, you know, the value of my work or that my work still wasn't connecting to the value. Um, so I looked around and I realized some of the people I worked with who I really admired had all gone through uh, the same academic program. So I went uh, and looked at that academic program, which was the Institute of Design in Chicago. School also has a strong sort of business sense about it, and I even went deeper in that realm as well to um, go ahead and get a Master's of Business um, Administration degree uh, from a neighboring school. I, I both became sort of versant in the business language and that perspective, but also came deeper in, in design methods. Mm-hmm. And it's at that time I, I got in contact with the folks from Adaptive Path. Uh, I certainly knew of them and their reputation, uh, but um, they were also looking to deepen sort of their their business sense, and so it just seemed like a really natural fit to um, come onto Adaptive Path and be be a part of uh, the excellent work they're doing here. Okay, I love that you're an industrial designer. I always give examples from that area of work when I, I t- try to explain what a usability designer does. Oh, excellent. So, what, what do you think stands out uh, with Adaptive Path? Because I'm not sure if Everybody exactly knows what Adaptive Path does, and I, from my point of view, it's a lot of good usability work, and that's not the way that Adaptive Path markets itself, the way I see it, but you always do outstanding work, which is quite funny. What, what is it that makes <laughs> makes Adaptive Path work so well? Yeah, um, that could be answered from a variety of ways. Um, I think that um, adapt, why does Adaptive Path stand out, first of all? I think yeah. that is because uh, we do spend a lot of time trying to give back to the community from which we come. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we are not just a cons- design consultancy. We actually spend a very serious amount of time to um, developing our own events um, where we hold conferences, um, we we spend a serious amount of time developing content and sharing what we learn through those events as well as pulling people we love to hear from to those events. Um, but uh, we also do sharing out through things like essays on our site, the blogging, um, trying to give back to um, you know the people who helped us create a lot of the knowledge we have. So I think we're just maybe out there more frequently than mm. than a lot of people that allows us to stand out. Um, but I think there's also some basic things about how we go about business that also allows us to to approach things in a different way. Um, for example, we, we really believe that design strategy are stronger when each is developed with the other in mind. So um, we don't just handle or, or approach a problem purely from the, the boundaries of usability. Um, a 100% use, usable system doesn't necessarily mean it's a useful system. Mm-hmm. Um, so we spend a lot of time focusing on those other dimensions of what's actually going to be compelling um, to the to the end user, what's going to capture imagination? Um, at that point, you know, it, people will um, engage with with the usability of your product at a much different level. Uh, so we focus a lot at deeper insights of customers um, and and try to as well bring in um, a good sense of how can technology be applied in a really useful manner. I think that's why, for example, Jesse's been, uh, Jesse James Garrett has been so mm-hmm. successful in, in coining the term Ajax because he realized the value of it and was able then to explain it in a very simple way about the way it benefits the end user. 
um, that is a reason why that term sort of uh, got the, the, the lift it did and became so popular. Good points about sharing, and something I'm actually struggling with, making my superiors understand how important it is. I'm starting our own company blog right now, trying to get people to write, and they're, they're really worried about, well, should it really be public? What about our like business secrets? And um, Well, <laughs> basically, the, the, the more we share, I, I think, uh, the better or, or more well-known we will be, and uh, that seems to be the way you're thinking as well. Uh, I think so very much. Uh, um, Jeff Veen, who um, is now at Google, who, who transitioned to Google mm-hmm. when we sold our, our product uh, measure map uh, to Google, said uh, at one point to me that um, whatever we give away in terms of free information tends to come back tenfold to yeah. us. Um, so that's either through... Yes, it's through uh, things like notoriety and being able to stand out, but also I think it's just the the... Um, freedom with which other people share information back with us and really create a discussion rather than us just being a siloed set of ideas within our own organization. We get to vet our ideas, test them out. We're certainly not right all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that really allows for some discourse that otherwise would be just trapped within these walls and wouldn't be nearly as rich. So um, it comes back to us in the form of business, but it also comes back to us in the form of ideas. Yeah. Yeah. Really good points, uh, and and about uh, well getting into the deep end of the business with the clients and it, it strikes me like well um, if we want to do a usability survey, you do a usability study. Uh, usually the clients uh, uh, are worried that it will cost too much and it's hard to get the return on investment <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. discussion going and making it real. And yep. of course, some some methodology, of course, is the best way to go, and some of it is the most cost-effective way to go, and some is some is cheaper than the rest. And how would you argue with the client when you want to do a, a specific study? Yeah. Um, usually these days we get into the arguments not as much around usability. I think there's a good bit of. Um, uh, backing for the kind of research of, okay, before we go to market and commercialize this idea, we really need to validate that um, that it is usable. And so we don't tend to have as many arguments as with that as it is um, more the, the upfront user research where um, there is very um, – it's very hard to tell someone what they're going to get out of some very qualitative – um, research of going into some uh, the world of a user and maybe through direct observation going into their home and looking mm-hmm. at all the things they do now, the context in which they work, um, what triggers their behaviors, what influences do they have around them if they're trying to, let's say, make decisions through your product or service. From a business standpoint, though, I think that kind of upfront user research really falls into about three different areas. Mm-hmm. Um, first of all, it's risk reducing, and that's usually what businesses really like to hear: is okay, so you're going to, you know, through through you know three or four work, weeks of work, you're going to help us, you know better target where our product or service goes, and you're going to reduce the risk of us developing something that overall will not end up being useful or um, compelling to to the audience we want to go for. Uh, So that can be interesting. Second, um, 
I think there's the sense of just um, opportunity development for business with research that um, we don't know what's out there. We want to find opportunities, and it's a true R&D type of activity that you're doing. And that's really rare. There's not many businesses who are ready to just go out there and, and say, fish <laughs> for new ideas through research. And, um, and often there are very special uh, research firms um, that, that are very focused on that. So um, not often do we see that kind. Um, but thirdly, uh, something that we do a lot and is sometimes the hardest to, to explain the value of, but is just going out in the field to develop empathy. Um, which can be done very quickly with a small number of interviews of, of let's just actually go and see what the life of a real user or a real uh, customer is really like um, and gain appreciation from their eyes so that we can walk a mile in their shoes and understand um, the services, how they perceive the services that are available now. And you just learn so much. A lot of it is... is uh, uh, Stupidly obvious once you hear it, but um, until you actually, you know, live through through their experiences, um, you don't feel it as strongly, or or you may have not come across that stupidly obvious idea just because you're sitting in a cubicle or at a desk and not from the the customer's perspective. Mm -hmm. Yep. Wow. <laughs> That's great. Uh, um, I suspect you're actually talking about some of the things you're talk going to talk about in Sweden when you're coming here in June. Uh, from what I understand, you're actually opening the conference. You're the keynote speaker the first day, and you're talking about strategic experience design. Yes, that's the, that would be it. Um, I, yeah, I'm very excited to uh, be keynote. <coughs> excuse me, keynoting the event. Um, the topic is really looking at. Where, where we've been in terms of user experience and where we're going. Um, for example, at the beginning of this talk, you, you referenced um, industrial design as somewhere where you pull examples from. Um, when we're talking to uh, Tim Brown, who's the CEO of um, the product and innovation firm IDEO, he, um, he had uh, said to Peter Mirholtz and myself um, that, hey, this is a young field in terms of experience design. There's not a lot of history to draw on. Um, so you really have to look to other disciplines a lot, like product design, like architecture, because there's such a longer and richer history of uh, where these guys have um, gotten over a lot of the um, bumps and obstacles that, that user experience is still trying to work through. And that has caused me to take sort of a, a perspective of what's, what's sort of the short history of uh, experience design, HCI, usability, this whole area that, that all of us work within. And what I saw is, you know, first of all, is just making it possible. Going from the world of punch cards to um, the first spreadsheet was huge leaps in capabilities, and you really have to give a lot of props to people um, who, who, have, um, who have gotten that work through and made that happen. But then moving forward through history, you know, we've, we've moved into things like usability and let's really focus on um, systems that not only don't hurt, um, but are actually um, pleasurable to use. Um, and, and I think there's, there's been a lot of refinement in that area and um, not that it's, it's reached its peak, but I think that um, 
that on top of usability now, we've certainly started building the, the argument of value. I think that's something that the dot-com bust had rushed in um, and, and forced a lot of people to take a deeper look at is what's the cost uh, versus value trade-off that um, things like usability, things like interface design is going to uh, contribute uh, to a problem, to a product. Uh, but I think there's also um, going to become, and, and certainly has been around for a long time, it's just we haven't um, embraced it in a big way, is how does, does, how does experience design, how does usability start to connect with more strategic um, implications within an organization? So, yes, we make things. Um, possible that weren't possible before. Yes, we can do it in a usable way. Yes, we can do it in a valuable way. Mm -hmm. But let's also talk about ideas that um, really also add something to the strategy. So much work for an organization is now being done through a web channel or through other channels that really have experiential components to it, whether it be phone, print, um, uh, meetings, um, uh, in-face interactions, all these types of experiences. And how can those experiences further the strategies of a business? What are what ideas that we develop and, and vet and test and interact with, with customers, what ideas um, are really going to be in alignment with the other core strategies of business? And so I'm going to try to explore a few ways of, of thinking about that, um, some examples where that's been done really well and um, how it can really add even more to the bottom line of a business. Right. Uh, a lot of clients of ours are now, well, it's like the, it's the second dot-com boom now, and people are coming to us. We want communities on our site, and um, Breaking that down into, well, what, how does that really benefit your business? Well, Ajax would be a good example, of course. Everybody wants mm -hmm. Ajax. Mm -hmm. um, how do we turn that around and, and make them realize what, what you really want? Is it, it's not Ajax. It's something that you want to achieve with your business. Yeah. Um, it, it feels like the, the community stuff from the you know, late 90s all over yeah. again. In some yeah. ways, when you talk about the, the Web 2.0 community was so hot back then, it's like, oh, we need, really need this you know, yeah. bulletin board style interface where people can come and chat about you know, barbecue on barbecue.com. Yeah. And uh, it, it um, sometimes just failed miserably. Um, the same thing certainly can happen from the, the more Web 2.0 perspective of we want user-generated content, which it could just be, in, in some cases, of how you implement it, just a normal, another you know, form of community building. Um, so I think we try to track, uh, and this is where um, upfront user experience or upfront user research can be really valuable, is what are the discussions that are happening anyway? Um, for example, before you buy a certain product or make decisions as a part of a certain service. Mm -hmm. Are you talking to people anyway? Are you trying to get a sense of what others are thinking um, anyhow? Or is it actually more valuable for us to just pick up an, on not actual other user-generated content, um, but actually just other patterns, um, mm -hmm. like the 
Amazon approach of, you know, other people who looked at this book ultimately ended up going and buying this book. Um, sometimes just uh, lighter forms of, of collaboration between users, even passive forms like that, um, can be more valuable. So we spend a lot of time looking at not just um, a single form of contribution to, to a, a system like uh, people entering comments, or but across the range because there's a lot of um, simpler ways to interact. There's certainly lighter things like adding a tag or adding a rating or just um, um, uh, by the fact of looking at something or, or clicking to a page where the the experience can be a little bit more emergent and respond to those types of behaviors and whether it's helping with pathways, helping, you know, exposing the trends not only to the business but also to your customers, they can yeah. be really valuable. Yeah. I read, I read a really interesting article in the Swedish Daily newspaper the other day about uh, user-generated content. It was actually about media culture and how uh, the way – uh, we act today is more more relevant or more like the way that we interacted in in the, in the Middle Ages, where people were out talking on town squares and sitting down and telling each other each other stories. And the 1900s have been people sitting in front of a television all the time, and all of a sudden everybody's producing content, which is quite interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is really interesting. We're getting back to a little bit of a you know there there. In some parts of society, was a letter writing culture at some point, and in some ways, yeah. we're we're getting back to that. Although our form is a lot messier, less eloquent, and um, but probably more more democratic and open. Mm-hmm. So true. Okay, I think we'll actually have to wrap up now. <laughs> okay. uh, it's been really great talking to you. Uh, hey, it's been really fun talking yeah, to you, Pear. And I hope uh, I'll see you on uh, June 14. Yeah, um, I, can, I look forward to meeting you in person. You too, Brandon. Thanks so much for your time. Säga vad man vill om amerikaner, men de är ofta fantastiskt välartikulerade och har en enastående förmåga att ge ord åt sina idéer. När jag frågar honom om vad det är som gör Adaptive Path så framstående inom branschen så för Brandon fram idén om att man som företag kan skapa sin position genom att dela med sig av kunskap. Och inte bara det, genom att dela med sig av kunskap skapar han också en dialog och de anställda lär sig också nya saker. Adaptive Path har dels en företagsblogg och de flesta anställda har också en egen privatblogg. Och det är ingen motsättning utan snarare ett sätt att nå ut till fler. De anordnar också seminarier och konferenser för att nå ut och skapa dialog. Och genom att vara mer närvarande hos sina intressenter, även fysiskt då, så syns man mer. Man får bra renommé, man hittar kunder, man hittar framtida kollegor och ökar samtidigt sin kompetens. Och argumenten för öppenhet kan ju egentligen inte bli mycket tyngre än så. Brandon citerar också Jeff Wien. Vad vi ger bort i form av gratis information kommer tillbaka till oss tiofaldigt, säger han. Det var inte alltid rätt, men genom att ha fel lär vi oss och uppfattas som mer mänskliga. Brandon och jag pratar också om usability kontra user research. En webbplats handlar inte bara om användbarhet och användarvänlighet. En bra webbplats är engagerande och fantasieggande. Och för att uppnå det måste man ha en djup förståelse för sin målgrupp och kunskaper om hur ny teknik kan användas. En metod som Brandon pratar om är användarundersökningar med syfte att skapa empati för målgruppen. 
Genom att befinna sig på plats där målgruppen lever och verkar så får man en bättre förståelse för behov, förkunskaper och förmågor. Vad målgruppen gillar eller undviker. Brandon nämner också ett skifte från att fokusera på användbarhet till att fokusera på värde. Han syftar på det värde vi ger användarna genom att erbjuda en viss tjänst eller utforma tjänsten på ett visst sätt. Han beskriver väldigt mycket kring det som jag ser som byggklossar i den nya generationen av webbplatser. Det som vi ofta kallar Web 2.0. Om jag dristar mig till då till att utnämna tre byggklossar i det som utgör Web 2.0 så vill jag börja med en ökad förmåga för företag att dela med sig av information och använda ny teknik. Till exempel då i form av bloggar och wikiwebbar. Företagsbloggning är ju på frammarsch, har givetvis inte slagit igenom stort ännu men man märker att när det används så ger det effekt. En andra byggkloss som jag vill nämna är rikare upplevelser. En högre grad av interaktivitet och möjligheter att göra saker på internet. Till exempel då genom Ajax och Flash. Och det ser man väldigt mycket av dem på de webbplatser som nämns i samband med Web 2.0. Man kan faktiskt Ja, utföra sådant som var förbehållet applikationer på datorn förut. Till exempel så kan man nu köra Word och Excel liknande program direkt i webbläsaren. Och en tredje byggkloss skulle då vara förmågan att släppa kontrollen och makten över informationen till användarna. De kan både påverka informationen och ta del av den på sina egna villkor genom till exempel RSS-flöden. Och den är väl kanske den svåraste tröskeln att ta sig över att inse att man måste låta användarna som i viss mån också är experter inom ämnet eftersom de är intresserade av det du har att erbjuda låta dem komma till tals på något sätt men i kommande program så pratar jag mer om just detta om wikis, om Ajax, om RSS-flöden och hur du med hjälp av den nya tekniken kan skapa just mer värde för dig själv och för webbplatsens besökare Härnäst på agendan står dock mitt besök på konferensen From Business to Buttons där jag får tillfälle att träffa och lyssna mer på branden och andra smarta människor. Innehållet i nästa program kommer då givetvis genomsyras av intryck från konferensen. Jag vill väldigt, väldigt gärna höra från dig som lyssnar. Information om programmet och dina möjligheter att mejla, ringa eller skypa in hittar du på programmets hemsida webtrender.se. Jag vill också passa på att framföra ett stort tack till Sue Party som står för vignettmusiken. Du hittar en länk till bandets webbplats och andra länkar i programnoterna på webbplatsen. Kom ihåg, kunskap är obetydlig om man inte delar med sig av det.